Welcome to the Housewife of Horrors podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Housewife of Horrors. Our last episode, we wrapped up a two-part series of Amish crimes. And at the end of the episode, I said that I wanted to do a Christmas crime story for December, and you guys did not disappoint. I got an email from Buzz McAllister out of Winneka, Illinois. He says he would love me to cover this case of the story he grew up hearing when he was a kid. He says he's now in his mid-40s, and he grew up hearing stories about his neighbor, Maxwell Marley, who everyone called Old Man Marley, and how he was a multi-murderer called the South Bend Shovel Slayer. The story he grew up hearing was he lived in South Bend, Indiana, and every winter he would have like his garbage can full of salt and always was shoveling and salting the sidewalks and walkways in front of everybody's house in the neighborhood he lived in. Well, in the winter of 1958, Old Man Marley murdered his whole family and half the people on his block with a snow shovel, and that he was never convicted because they apparently never found the bodies. It is speculated that after each kill, he would put the bodies into his salt can, cover them with rock salt until the body was dried out enough to be disposed of. It's thought that he would dump the salt and the bodies into hidden graves because in addition to drying the bodies out, salt also keeps natural predators from digging up the remains. Well, of course, this had me pulled in. So when I started researching this case, I did find the part of the story where he said they never found the bodies. That was, of course, not true. All the bodies were left at the scene, but you know how stories change details over the years. So somebody, you know, probably said that to scare him as a kid. But so after all the murders and everything, he's apparently been hiding out in the Winneka neighborhood ever since he was ran out of South Bend. And I looked at it and Winneka is about like two and a half hours west of South Bend, Indiana. So anyway, thank you, Buzz, for your email request and including those details, especially about rock salt. Who knew? Well, from those details, my research found a twisted timeline of a neighborhood gripped in fear of who would be murdered next. This totally sounds like another onion of a request, so without further ado, let's start peeling. The police investigation shines some light into the life of Maxwell Marley. It is reported that he was active duty in the Army during World War II, and he was medically discharged in 1946. I couldn't find the extensive details as to what was wrong with him medically, but I did read that he sustained a head trauma and that he barely survived. After recovering, he was unable to continue serving in the Army, and that's when he returned home to South Bend, Indiana. The rest of this story I pieced together from some archive local papers and the police report, of course, but it was kind of cool reading all these different articles that would highlight achievements of local residents, while other articles read as a connective tissue of events and happenings all over this town. 
I was able to make a comprehensive timeline of events from those articles and details the police put out there. They didn't put a whole lot, but I was able to get some morsels of information. So like I said, in 1946, he was discharged from the army, returns to South Bend. It's in 1948 that he was working housekeeping at Memorial Hospital, the one on North Michigan Street, a couple blocks from the river. He was working there when he met his future wife, Sarah. She was there visiting her father who just had open heart surgery. They dated for a short time. They got married and bought their first home on Calvert Street in 1949. And they had their first and only child, Andrew, in 1950. From outside appearances, the Marley family was your quintessential Midwestern family. Sarah tended to her rose bushes each spring. I saw one article where a neighbor commented that she had so many rose bushes that it would make the street smell of roses. And then their little boy, Andrew, he grew up happy, healthy. He rode his bikes around town with his friends, stuff like that. Typical kid. And Maxwell was known for being a really nice guy. He loved helping his neighbors work on their cars. And in the winters, he would walk up and down the street, shoveling and salting the sidewalks and walkways. Reading through more clippings, it seems that life in Rum Village, that's the neighborhood in South Bend that they lived in, was very normal. Some could even say boring. People went to work, kids went to school. It made me think of Leave it to Beaver in a simpler time. However, that would all come to an end in the winter of 1958. So we're going to fast forward. It's 1958. It all started December 2nd. The Miller family lived at 1301 West Calvert Street and was supposed to be at the church potluck. It is noticed quickly that the Millers aren't there because Roger Miller was scheduled to start the dinner with the Lord's Prayer and Lorraine said she would bring her famous ambrosia salad that she brings every year. A few of their friends tried calling the house thinking they were running behind, but there was no answer. That's when a couple of friends from the church went over to their house to see if everything was all right. They arrive and see Roger's car in the driveway and that the lights are on upstairs in the house. Jim Perkins, the, one of the guys who went to the house, told police that he knocked on the door and he walked in because the door wasn't locked. He turned on the living room light to see that Roger and Lorraine had been killed. Their bodies was laying on the living room floor, but their heads were missing. Jim ends up making his way to the kitchen to call police, and that's where he found Lorraine's head in the bowl of ambrosia salad that she made for the potluck, and Roger's head was in the sink with the dirty dishes. Jim runs out of the house, and he tells his friend that's there with him, Mike, he goes, Roger and Lorraine are dead. We need to call police. They hightail it over the neighbor's house. They call police. Police arrive at the Miller household around 745, just a few minutes after Jim made the gruesome discovery. They processed the scene, but there was no forced entry, no footprints in the snow, no nothing. But they did find a few granules of rock salt around the bodies. But it was winter, and that salt could have been brought in by anybody, so it was noted, and then they moved on trying to find more solid evidence. Well, rumors about the Miller murders start spreading fast around Rum Village, and the residents are scared because of how brutal the attack really was. It's now December 7th, and it's the night of the Lincoln Elementary annual Christmas play, and everyone is already on edge. 
and things go from worrisome to worse when Miss White, the music teacher who was to play the piano for the school play, hadn't arrived. The principal and the vice principal of the school grow concerned when it's 7.15 and she's still not there. Hoping that they weren't being paranoid, but scared of what happened to the Millers, they call the police and explain that Mrs. White isn't here, she's never late, and could you please do a welfare check at her house? Police get to Mrs. White's house, her name's Jean, so they get to Jean's house, which is about a quarter mile down the street from where the Millers lived. They start by knocking on the door, to no avail. Officer Winston opens the door and yells out, Jean, it's South Bend Police. You in here? Nothing. That's when officers Winston and Jackson do a walkthrough of the house. They make their way up the stairs where they can see a door slightly open and there's a light on. As they open the door, they see Jean dead on her bed and her head is missing. When the police did their walkthrough, they located her head in the fish tank that was in her recreation room. And like the Millers a few days before, there was no signs of any forced entry or footprints in the snow but again, rock salt in her bedroom. Police are really starting to feel in over their head. They have three murders. It's been five days on the same street in this quiet, unassuming Indiana neighborhood. Well, it's 1958, so forensics isn't as fast or detailed as it is today, but the initial autopsies did reveal that Roger, Lorraine, and Jean all had their heads removed by some dull instrument. I can only assume, based off of what I've heard of Jack the Ripper's details, I'm guessing that the cuts weren't clean, like they were made with a sharp object. I'm guessing it was kind of brutal and possibly mushy that there was a dull instrument that probably didn't remove their heads on the first whack. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. It's now December 9th and the police make a plea that if anyone has seen anything weird or thinks that something was out of the ordinary, no matter how small a detail, please phone the tip into the police. They are also telling all residents of South Bend, especially in the Rum Village neighborhood, to stay vigilant. Be aware of your surroundings. Lock your doors and windows. People are, again, rightfully scared, but still try to carry on with their everyday lives. Parents are putting on happy faces and trying to keep their Christmas cheer up for their kids, but even that was proving difficult over the next few days. So a few days end up passing, and it's now December 14th. The Neighborhood Council has Christmas in the Park scheduled at Rum Village Park. It's a holiday event that happens every year and it's supposed to be a fun night of caroling and drinking nog and sleigh rides in the park and the kids telling Santa what they want for Christmas. But this year, Christmas in the Park, it just isn't the same. I read an article where somebody said you could feel the tension. It was just palpable in the air. You could cut it with a knife. So locals are scared and there is a distrust in the air because is the killer one of them? Someone that they call friend possibly? No one seems to have any answers. And despite all the uncertainty, the event seems to be going off without a hitch. Until, and there's always an until or a but or a however. So until the Butler family comes home from the park to notice that all the lights to their neighbor's house, the Moore family, all of their lights are off. Gary Butler told police that when they got home from the event, it was around 9.15, 9.30. 
He told his wife Gladys that he didn't remember seeing the Moors at the park and that it's odd that their car is in the driveway, but all of their lights are off. Gary decides to call police because his gut wasn't feeling right. Police arrive at 9.50 and Gary gives the police the Moore house key. He said that Bill Moore had given it to him a couple years ago when they went out of town and he told him to keep it just in case. The police get inside the Moore house. As they walk through the house, they find Margaret beheaded in her kitchen. They end up finding her head in the crisper drawer of the refrigerator. Bill, they find him in the pantry basement where they kept all their jarred fruits and vegetables. He is found down there and his head is placed on the shelf amongst the canned vegetables. And their two kids, a 10 and 11 year old, they were also beheaded and found in their bedrooms. Their heads were found in the blanket chest at the end of each of their beds. It was noted also that there was rock salt found near the bodies, but none was collected for evidence. The butlers and the Moors live across the street from the last victim, Jean White. Police are at a loss because even though there is an increased police presence, another four murders happened right under their nose. The neighborhood has gone from scared to outraged because of the lack of movement, clues, and suspects. All they know is that they were killed in the same manner and there is no clues at the scene. No real clues. The investigation starts taking a hard look at everyone that lives on the street and something strikes the lead investigator, Lieutenant Paul Armstrong. Something strikes him weird is that it's winter, but there are no footprints around any of the victims' houses, nor any prints or water puddles inside any of the houses from like snow on your shoe. He also notes that the rock salt is found at all the scenes, but again, it's not out of the ordinary at this time of year. Lieutenant Armstrong says that he was grabbing at straws when he started to look at a particular suspect, but at this point, grabbing at straws was all he could do. He doesn't publicly come out with the name at the time as to not spook the suspect, but he starts focusing his efforts on Maxwell Marley. Lieutenant Armstrong said in a later statement that it was a comment that was made about him about how he was so nice and he would shovel everyone's sidewalk. He shoveled the sidewalks. That was the light bulb. That's the one way to enter and leave a person's house without leaving water footprints or leaving footprints in the snow. So going with his gut, he finds the person that makes the snow shoveling comment to ask further details. Yes, he was shoveling the street, but was he salting after what he shoveled? That person that made the comment is Maxwell's own neighbor, Ronald Kelly. Lieutenant Armstrong questions Ronald about Maxwell's outside habits. What kind of guy was he? Did you ever see him do or act anything out of the ordinary? Ron tells him that he never saw anything out of the ordinary, but he did salt after he did all his shoveling. So this just added a little levity to Maxwell being at the scene. I don't want to say being the killer, but definitely being at the scene. Well, it's now December 22nd and it's been oddly quiet in Rum Village until 8.15 when a call comes in from Maxwell Marley himself. He is hysterical on the phone and all in the dispatcher can make out is that someone is dead, please send help. Again, police lights and sirens are blazing on Calvert Street. Everyone that lives close to the Marley house is standing down in the cold trying to see what's going on. 
police and Maxwell are on the front lawn and he's screaming, not my family, why God them? Police enter the Marley household to find another familiar murder scene. His wife and son had both been beheaded. Her head was found in the decorative bowl that was on their living room table, and his son's head was found on the floor lined up with the shoes right by the front door. And like the others before, no forced entry, and rock salt was found in the home. Maxwell was taken down to the station for questioning. He tells Lieutenant Armstrong that he was at Ardmore Hardware, which was approximately five miles from his house, getting a few things. It was at the seven o'clock hour. He says he remembers the time because the owner, Philip, said something about going on his dinner break about 7.45 and he was excited for the pot roast and seasoned potatoes that his wife had made for dinner. He wraps up that conversation. He buys some nails, some Reno, a new caulking gun, and a 50-pound bag of rock salt. When he returned home a few minutes after 8, he found his wife and son dead, and that's when he called police. He's obviously held while they process the house. The next day, December 23rd, just a couple of days before Christmas, you'd think everybody would be happy about gift-giving and honey-baked hams, but all that's being talked about is how Maxwell Marley, the neighbor everyone thought was so nice, killed his family and his neighbors with a snow shovel the same shovel he used to clean everyone's sidewalk. Reporters and the news catch wind of this story and they dub him the South Bend Shovel Slayer. It's days later and police just can't seem to find any hardcore evidence that it would take to convict, so they do have to let him go, but they make it known that he is their number one suspect and the minute that something concrete proof comes in, they will be arresting him and seeking out the death penalty. The neighborhood... Hell, the city of South Bend is irate that police let Maxwell out of jail. The only evidence they have is purely circumstantial and that will not get a conviction in a court of law. So it is in their best interest to wait till they know he can be convicted because of the whole double jeopardy. Well, Maxwell goes back to living at his house, but now he only works on his car and he only shovels his sidewalk. His neighbors and the police are 100% convinced that he is the South Bend Shovel Slayer. A couple of neighborhood residents that wanted to remain anonymous said that he eventually did move away because of the police. The police were constantly watching his house, pulling him over for every little infraction, showing up at his jobs, and just making his life a living hell. When the newspaper tried to confirm those allegations of the police, they were told that, quote, The South Bend police does not condone nor encourage bullying and that everyone is innocent until proven guilty, end quote. So, standard form letter there. All of the murders of Rum Village that occurred in the winter of 1958 are still open, active, and unsolved cases to this day. Maxwell Marley moved away in 1959. A few years later, it looks like, uh, I couldn't quite tell if it was 1963 or 1964. It might have started in the 63 and finished in 64. The city of South Bend started to demolish the houses on Calvert Street. And if you look at a map today, you'll see that there aren't many houses on that section of Calvert Street because they were trying to demolish as many houses in an attempt to forget what happened. 
based on Buzz's email, I'm guessing that Maxwell moved to Winneka after leaving Rum Village. He did add at the end of the email that every winter as he was growing up, Maxwell does pull out a metal garbage can full of rock salt and does shovel and salt the sidewalks in front of everyone's house on the street. Now, that's his email. That's the research I found out. I don't want to place blame on or guilt on Maxwell Marley because the evidence at the scene, just not concrete enough. I do find it very odd that all the people that were killed, it was everybody in everyone's house. But when it came to his house, just his wife and kid was killed. He managed to survive. His survival could be a fluke, a miscalculation on the killer's part that ended up saving his life. I mean, this is all just a little too coincidental, one coincidence, two coincidence, but it may appear odd that he continued to live an everyday life after he moved away, or even while the murders were happening. He just kind of went on being this everyday average Joe. I say that it was a fluke or odd because he wasn't looked at or even suspected until a simple comment was made and a cop was desperate and started grasping at straws. Him continuing to live his everyday life while killing can be kind of explained away, however. Remember, I said early on that he was discharged from the military due to a head trauma. Well, he could have sustained, well, he did sustain that head injury. And of course, they didn't know what the hell CTE was and concussion awareness and all that back in 1958. So I'm fairly certain that he kind of went on living this double life of maybe a killer and then a regular guy because of the brain damage that he suffered. They have only started to scratch the surface of what head injuries do to people long term. But on the other hand, like I said before, coincidence once, sure, twice, maybe, but to have that many, it doesn't make me confident in his innocence. But I'd also like to think that if he killed that many people so close to home that he would have acted different, blood on his boots or clothes, his wife would have noticed a difference in him. But then again, maybe noticing that difference got her killed. So that makes sense too. Maybe he was content or driven to kill those around him except those he loved. And because she found evidence or noticed a difference in him, that was her demise. I feel torn because I don't want to believe that the neighborhood nice guy would kill so many people so brutally, but then again, look at BTK. This guy was a pillar of his community, he was a deacon in his church, and he was killing people for 30 years. So knowing that and looking at the stories with some evidence, man, I mean, in a court of law, obviously there's reasonable doubt, so they wouldn't get a conviction. But if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, if he did do it, Time and lack of modern forensics was definitely on his side, and let's just hope that he lived out his life quietly in the Winneka neighborhood, keeping a low profile to avoid the investigation from furthering, any more light shined on him, unwanted attention. If he didn't do it, then did the killer stay among the residents of Rum Village? Did the police ever look at anyone else or did they just stay laser focused on Marley because there was no other people to look at? 
I just, I have so many questions. However, everyone involved in the case, whether they were related to the victims, lived in the neighborhood, or was involved in the investigation, well, they're all old and probably gone. They're probably gone by now. I would think everybody being that far back, everybody has now passed away. And now all we have is police files, archive local papers, and neighborhood folklore. So that being said, I mean, what do you guys think? I mean, we've got this little bit of evidence, but we've got no forced entry. We've got this neighborhood nice guy. We've got head trauma. It's hard to say. Definitely uh, the forensics not being what they are today. I think if they tested stuff today, if there was something to test because they didn't say anything about like lifting any prints or any kind of DNA or hairs left behind, you didn't hear about any of that. I mean, maybe that's hush-hush because it is still an ongoing investigation. I would like to think that snow shovel would have dented. Did he get a new shovel each time? Because, I mean, you got to get through the vertebrae, and that's like bone. And I would, I would think that that would damage the snow shovel, and they would have found that snow shovel and been like, hey, what's with all these dents? What's with this blood, you know? It... The evidence just isn't there. I don't know what I believe, but I know that if I was on that jury, I would not convict him because there's reasonable doubt and that's all you need to get acquitted of anything. So I definitely think he would be acquitted because there is some evidence, but there's just not enough. So that being said, Buzz, thank you for your request. It was definitely interesting. I had to do some serious digging, but I was able to clarify some of the folklore you heard growing up and, you know, clarify some details. So now you know, like the real story. Well, as real a story as we all know, the only one who really knows is old man Marley, and he's out there shoveling those sidewalks. Well, that wraps up another case. This one was kind of short, but I had a good time covering it because this is just, I've never heard of something so odd, but so mysterious at the same time. Like this guy was a phantom. Like nobody saw anything. There was nothing. So on that note, thank you for listening along. You will find visual aids at, uh, on my Instagram and Facebook page, Housewife of Horrors. That is plural. And we appreciate you listening and we will catch you next month.